Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 16. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 16. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. The phrase, under the sun, occurs many times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and so it is important we understand what it means. It refers to this sinful world down here. In contrast to the perfection of holiness which exists above the sun in heavenly glory. Now, we are referred here in this verse to the place of judgment and the place of righteousness. Now, these are those places on earth where it is expected that justice and righteousness should prevail, such as in the courts of law uh, or within the church of Solomon's day, the gathering of the called out ones in Solomon's day. That is where one would expect uh, righteousness and judgment to prevail. Yet Solomon observed that on many occasions wickedness was a characteristic of both church and state. So it is an aspect of God's providence that he allows the wicked to prosper for a while. He does, of course, allow men to commit sin. And men sin even as they hold high positions of authority and responsibility. This is partly because God has not pre-programmed his creatures to behave as automatons, but rather, through his common grace drawing them, he has given to non-believers the ability to turn to him without at the same time destroying their wills whereby they can resist his drawing. So when men remain in sin and unbelief, it is their own deliberate fault that they do so. Because God is never the author of the sin of man. Now, Solomon is observing that as he looks around, he sees a defiance of God even in high places, even in the places where one would expect there to be high standards of righteousness. This defiance of God can be observed, of course, in all nations. And 
it is tragically often to be found where it should be least expected. That is, amongst the civil and spiritual leaders of nations, amongst judges and magistrates. This is an appalling abuse of power and privilege. But it is even more blameworthy in the case of Old Testament Israel. Because they possessed the scriptures and the prophets and the priesthood to lead them into all the truth. So Solomon laments this state of affairs under the sun in this fallen world that in the place of righteousness, iniquity often prevails. And so, this is why we look out upon a fallen world and find it to be so imperfect. In Isaiah 1 and verse 21, we read this, How is the faithful city become an harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers. Thy silver is become dross. Thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. So there we have an account of much corruption in high places in the nation of Judah in the time of Isaiah. In any land where there is no influence of the Christian gospel and no fear of the one true God even the law itself has a tendency to become perverted with bribery and corruption often coming to the fore. In the early 18th century in this country a public office was frequently obtained through bribery. Corruption was rife. And so wickedness characterised the higher echelons of society. And of course it was just as bad through the rest of society. Uh, Large numbers of ordinary working people, including the more poor people, uh, were addicted to gin which was being produced uh, at very high levels and at a very cheap price. So the nation was characterised by drunkenness in the streets and bribery and corruption in high places. What brought about an improvement in that appalling state of affairs? Was it the government spending more money? No. It was the preaching 
of the gospel. Only the preaching of the gospel can change the human heart. And in God's providence, in the 1730s and onwards, we, we, we had the early Methodists being raised up and the great evangelical awakening. And a few men travelled all around the country and they stood in the marketplaces and they preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. They didn't preach we must abolish poverty. They did not preach the government must do more about all these problems. They preached the need for sinners to repent. That is the great need of our nation today. And so Isaiah was lamenting the fact and Solomon here is lamenting the fact that there is corruption in high places. Those who are supposed to be making the law are lawbreakers themselves. And this is because they lack the yardstick by which to make good law. And because there is no fear of God in their hearts. Nations go terribly astray when there is no strong spiritual leadership. We read in Jeremiah 2 and verse 8, The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. The prophets prophesied by Baal. They were meant to be speaking in the name of the one true God. And so the nation was without any spiritual direction. The people who should have been the spiritual teachers of the nation were following the ways of the world around them. Jeremiah 5 verse 31 The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their means and my people love to have it so. This is interesting. The church of the day was not preaching the truth and the people liked it. You see, the people liked not being challenged about their sin. My people love to have it so. False teaching is always attractive to the world. And so there is this situation where wickedness prevails in exactly the place where justice and righteousness should have prevailed. Now, it was exactly the same when our Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus 
to put him to death. Now you would have thought that the chief priests and the elders, the spiritual leaders of the nation, and all the council, the Sanhedrin, they were supposed to be the most godly men in the land, they sought false witness against Jesus. They deliberately sought the perversion of justice in order to have the Lord put to death. What a tragic state of affairs for a nation when iniquity is present in the place of rule and authority. And this is what Solomon is reflecting upon as he studies the type of world in which he lives. It is obvious that wickedness frequently prevails. And it is an aspect of God's providence that he does permit this wickedness to prevail. He allows men, in their stupidity, for a while, to go their own foolish ways. Solomon says in verse 17 here, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. And so Solomon tells us that in his perfect timing, the Lord will vindicate the righteous and bring down the wicked. So here is much encouragement for us today. There will come a time when justice will be properly exercised. And the wicked will be brought down. Now this can happen, of course, in this life. Because God has all kinds of earthly means at his disposal to stop the ungodly in their tracks. And, of course, it will most certainly happen on the great last day. As we read in Acts 17 and verse 30, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And so the resurrection of Christ is the vindication by God the Father that there will indeed be a coming day of judgment. And therefore men must repent and not delay. There is an appointed time for God's work of judgment. This is what verse 17 is saying. There is a time there for every purpose and for every work, and that includes judgment. There often appears, does there not, to be a long delay in God's judgments. And ungodly men 
often mock because of the delay in the coming judgment. They think that this means they have impunity for their sins. They do not realise that the delay in coming judgment is actually God's gracious opportunity to give them time to repent. But they use it to try and argue that God does not even exist, simply because he is delaying to come in judgment. This is brought out clearly in 2 Peter 3 and verse 3. There shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Then in verse 9 of 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So it is wrong to interpret a time of apparently no immediate judgment as meaning that there will never be judgment. God has his appointed time. He has not yet come in full judgment against our own nation. He has given us various warnings, but the full judgment has obviously not yet come. Uh, most of us continue to live uh, very prosperous and peaceful lives in this country. But that does not mean that the judgment will not come. The temporary prosperity of the wicked is merely the lull before the storm. Psalm 92 and verse 7. When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. So people enjoying relative peace and prosperity in the midst of their wickedness is not a sign that God will not judge them. Sodom, just before its destruction, was a place abounding in plenty and in material prosperity. And people were proud of their human achievements, their progressive society. But judgment did come. 
I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. The word there in verse 17, in the phrase, there is a time there for every purpose, means with God in his divine plan. There is a time there in his providential scheme of things for every work of judgment. So judgment will come sooner or later. Judgment is a distinct part of God's dealings with men. And we simply cannot leave it out of our Christian testimony. In Uxbridge on Friday, when we had a a crowd of angry young people in front of us, a Christian lady came up to me and said, stop talking about God's judgment. And then they'll calm down. She said, just talk about God's love. Did the apostles leave judgment out of their message? Did they endeavour in all that they said to try and be as user-friendly as they possibly could so that no one would ever be upset by what they said? If we are to be faithful to Scripture, we must call sinners to repentance. It is an act of love to them to do that. It is an act of love to warn about judgment. If one sees a young child running towards a cliff edge, do we think, well, I mustn't upset that child by shouting at him? Or do we say, stop, turn round, come back? Luke 18, verse 7. The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking here. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. So there we see our Lord himself referring to the necessity of divine vengeance. Vengeance upon the persecutors of his chosen ones. Now, of course, judgment, we should not view judgment as something negative. Judgment is something entirely positive because through judgment we see a discernment between the evil and the good. So often, when we endeavour to witness against sin, we are told, oh, the Bible says you must not judge. The Bible, of course, does not say that at all. When 
the Lord Jesus Christ said, judge not that ye be not judged. He was specifically uh, addressing a group of self-righteous hypocrites who were not practising what they preached. Now those people had no right to make judgments, but he was not saying that we must, as Christians, never distinguish between right and wrong. Judgment is a good thing because judgment includes God's vindication of the righteous. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That is judgment. It's a wonderful thing. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. When will the Lord Jesus Christ do that? On the day of judgment. Judgment's a good thing, a wonderful thing. Colossians 3, verse 24. Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. That is God's judgment. The vindication of the righteous. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. Colossians 3.25 So Paul tells us there that there is a coming day of recompense for both the righteous and the wicked. This is great comfort for the Christian. Now we long that the wicked come to repentance. But if they do not, we also know that none will ever succeed in pursuing their Christ-rejecting wickedness with impunity. Now Solomon goes on in verse 18 here. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. That they might see that they themselves are beasts. Having considered in the previous verse the certainty of God's judgment upon men, Solomon now considers men's estate, their condition. Solomon contemplates the condition of those coming under judgment, their estate. And notice that he refers to all the sons of men. All are fallen creatures. All are in an abject spiritual condition. Until, of course, they come to Christ. 
we are told here in verse 18 that God is to manifest them. Manifest the sons of men. That means he is going to expose them for what they really are. He is going to test them and prove them so as to manifest their true estate, to expose the baseness that is within them. Just as impurity in metals is exposed by the process of smelting. Now in his spiritual blindness, the sophisticated non-Christian does not realise his true estate. He does not realise the awful condition of his heart. He does not understand his susceptibility to the coming judgment. And it is our task to tell him just that, what his true condition is. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. And so men need to be made to see that by their rejection of their maker and their unbelief, they have reduced themselves to the level of the beasts. They have been created in the image of God, but they have reduced themselves to the level of the beasts. Man has a wicked heart. This is where we have to start in any presentation of the gospel. In the open air, we frequently preach on Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. The reins, R-E-I-N-S. Renal unit in a hospital, literally the kidneys. Our innermost being. What's the function of the kidneys? It's to remove impurities. God is looking deep inside of us. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And so God looks at the hearts of men and he sees that through their unbelief they are but as beasts. It's ironic, isn't it, that so many people, because of the theory of evolution, actually think that they are evolved beasts rather than these glorious creatures made in the image of God. Unbelief reduces men to that beast-like level. 
In Revelation 3 and verse 17, our Lord says this to a group of self-satisfied people. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. And so what the Lord is saying there is that men need to be made to see their true spiritual condition. And it is not a good condition. Because the heart is deceitful above all things. Large numbers of people tell us in the open air that they think that they are good people. Their heart is deceiving them. Who can know the heart? I, the Lord, search the heart. See, man's problem is he does not realise what his heart is really like. Now it is the Holy Spirit's work to reveal to men the true nature of their hearts. When the word of God is being proclaimed, the Spirit works upon men's hearts, convincing them of sin and revealing to them their wretched state. God knows exactly what all men are like. He knows what they are like deep inside. His word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now those who in this life resist the work of the Holy Spirit, revealing to them the true condition of their hearts, will no longer be able to resist on the day of judgment. Because then all their thoughts and works will be totally exposed and they will be utterly ashamed. Oh, that men might realise the true condition of their hearts. Verse 18 here, I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them, show them what their hearts are really like, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. The Hebrew word rendered manifest here in this verse 18 uh, carries the connotation of selecting, picking out and winnowing. Winnowing is the process whereby chaff is separated from wholesome grain. Now, that is exactly what God's judgment is. It is his manifesting of that which is impure, so as to separate and remove it. And so, this principle of separating out the impure is a very important one. And so, 
John the Baptist uh, said of our Lord in Luke 3 and verse 17, His fan is in his hand and he will truly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. So there, in, in Luke three seventeen, the Lord is speaking of a winnowing process. He is going to separate the wheat from the chaff in respect of the sons of men. The chaff has to be isolated and removed. Another word for this is judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ is a judge. Let us not be ashamed of the word judge. It's a wonderful word. It's an aspect of God's glorious holiness. We cannot preach the gospel without speaking of God's judgment. Would any of us wish to live in a world without judgment and justice? If our property is stolen, we expect the police to do something about it. We all believe in justice. And all those unbelievers out there, they want justice if they are wronged. But they don't want an almighty God of justice. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. On the day of judgment, our Lord is going to separate men, one from another, as the shepherd separateth the sheep from the goats. You see, modern secular philosophy is all about togetherness. Let's embrace diversity and all come together. But Christianity, God's truth, separates. Separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the righteous from the wicked. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to put the one division of mankind on his right hand and the other division of mankind on his left hand. And thus the ungodly shall be plainly manifested and exposed. And there's going to be far more people on his left hand than on his right hand. Verse 18, I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Men in and of themselves without God, without the indwelling spirit are little more than beasts. They are living purely on the level of animal passion. Whereas God has created men in his own image. 
on an infinitely higher plane than the beasts. Man has been given dominion over the beasts. Yet many spurn this high privilege of being special and superior creatures by believing in evolution. Psalm 32 and verse 9 Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding. So that clearly implies that there is an innate tendency in fallen men to become animal-like when they depart from God. Psalm 49, verse 12. Nevertheless, man being in honour abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. Verse 20 of Psalm 49. Man that is in honour and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. So despite all the glory and honour which men tend to bestow upon themselves apart from God, their estate or condition is no better than that of the beasts. It is ironic how our society puts so much emphasis upon human rights and human dignity, whilst at the same time pursuing the sins which deface the true dignity of those created in the image of God. Psalm 73, verse 22. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Now there the psalmist is describing a period of faithlessness in his life. And he likes it to animal behaviour. And this is what Solomon here sees as he surveys the world around him. How do we cope today with the existence of so much wickedness all around us? Well, we cope like this, by working and praying that sinners might come to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. And we do that, we preach the gospel with all of our hearts. But if men will not come to Christ, we also take heart that God is a God of justice and none will escape his all-seeing eye. Justice will be done and the righteous will be vindicated. So let us take comfort this day And rejoice as Christians that Jesus Christ is a righteous judge. Amen.